0: About tonight, is fervently loving one another from the heart. Now, this is something that's been burning on my heart for a long time. Um, from the age of around seventeen to twenty, I pretty much turned my back on God. I went to high school here in Simi Valley. I played sports, and I was really close to a couple of guys on the team. And over a three-, four-year period, um, you could say we were like brothers. Now, they didn't know the Lord, um, but they weren't, they, didn't, they weren't partiers in high school. They, they didn't um, live for the world in the way other people um, at my school did. They were dedicated to football. They were dedicated to getting good grades. They got 4.0s, GPAs. They were the valedic- valedictorians because they have more than one valedictorian now. Back in the day, it was, you get one valedictorian, and now several valedictorians. If you got a 4.0 GPA or higher, you're a valedictorian. So anyways, really smart guys. They got college scholarships, and, um, but they drew me away. They drew my heart away from the Lord. For several years, we hung out together. We played sports together. We worked out together. We played cards together. And Once they started to go to college... They started to drink, party, live for themselves, live for the world. Their whole attitude in life changed. And what happened was I started to do the same thing and go right down that trail. But these guys, I was so close with them. We did everything together. And then at around 21, God brought me to my knees and he showed me my utter dependence for him. He showed me How empty I was. He showed me that I was living a life of vanity. And right around the age of 21, I rededicated my life to the Lord. And it was hard because I had to distance myself from those friends that I loved so much for those years. And God said, you need to cut them out of your life because bad company corrupts good morals. And the more I hung out with them, the more they dragged me back into the world. So I had to distance myself. But then I started coming back to church, right? And ever since then, these verses, loving one another, fervently loving one another from the heart, have been passionate. Um, I've been passionate about these verses because I want that same closeness that I had to those people in the world, my friends in high school, I want to see that same closeness with my brothers and sisters in the church. And I was very selfish in my early 20s at church, I remember I used to sit right over there and for maybe a period of about a year or two, right after church ended, right after Joe did communion and he prayed, I would run for the door. I wouldn't even look at anyone really. I I didn't want to talk to anybody. Didn't want to pray with anyone. I was just like, I'm out of here. And I did that for maybe a year or two, uh, most Sundays. And then the Lord worked on my heart and he said, I command you to love your brothers. And I started reading scriptures like this in 1 Peter 1, 22, where he says, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Now, this is a command. It's not a suggestion. If you're a Christian, if your heart's been purified, if you've been made holy because of what Christ did for us on the cross, You are commanded, you and I are commanded to fervently love one another from the heart. Now, what does fervently mean? It can be translated as deep, constant, strenuous, intense, earnest, or zealous. This is an intense love for our brothers and sisters in the Lord. If you remember, Jesus said, even the pagans love their own, right? Even the pagans love their own families, What is that if you just love your wife and your kids? But we are to love our brothers and sisters like ourselves. And in 1 John 3, 16, it says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. I was talking to one of the program men at the mission where I work about that verse earlier today, and we're just talking about what he was like, Wow, God actually wants me to lay down my life for my brother? I said, "Yeah." I go. Christ is our example. He laid down his life for us. That's what we are to do for our brothers and sisters in the Lord. First Peter four eight says, "Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sin." Or yes, a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. We're able to overlook the sins in other people's lives when we fervently love them. And if you remember from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, one of the attributes of love is it does not take into account a wrong suffered. Many of us have been wronged by people in the church, and it's hard for us to overlook those things and to love them still. But Christ calls us to take that path, the path of love So what I want to submit to you guys tonight is that we need to have these deep, lasting friendships and relationships with Christ with one another, in Christ with one another. Whether the government shuts us, the churches down, which God is the one that started the church, right? Christ is the one. That initiated the church. The government doesn't get to tell us that church is shut down. We're still gonna meet somehow, whether that's at the park, whether that's at our houses and our backyards. I don't know, but we are gonna figure out a way to continue to meet. And I had some of the young adults, hopefully I can say this to the live stream, and, but I had the young adults over my house last night in my backyard, and we're praying for one another, and we're teaching one another in the Word, and we're reading together. And we're there for each other, eating meals together, because we're going to continue to meet, because we're commanded to encourage one another. We're commanded to continue to gather, and we're commanded to love each other deeply from the heart. And so the young adults were over till about 11 o'clock last night, last week till midnight. I want to just do all-nighters and say, if you guys just want to keep praying and keep worshiping and keep reading God's word, I have to work the next day, but God will give me the strength. You know, I'll catch up on the weekends or something. We we need more than ever right now when this world is in disarray and there's division and there's chaos, we need more than ever right now to draw close to one another. And that's what I want to talk about tonight. What did Jesus say about loving one another? How did the early church in the first century following Jesus' ascension into heaven in the book of Acts, how did they love each other? And how did the Christian church in the first several centuries, in the second and third and fourth centuries, how did they love one another? There was two plagues in the second and third century that um, before I put together this study, I I don't think I've ever read about those before, in which it gave an opportunity for the Christians to let their lights shine brightly. And I want to talk about that. And I want to ask the question to us, Can we say that we are individually, fervently loving each other from the heart? And what is hindering us from fulfilling this command? What idol in our life? What sin? Maybe it's our flesh. It's getting in the way of us reaching out to a brother and the Lord. It's getting in the way of us reaching out to a sister. We're not... What happens in the church, I believe, is we can get clicky sometimes. And we can... We can start associating with people that are just like us or believe or maybe they're just as mature as us. And that's going to happen at times. But what about the people that are being overlooked? What about the person, maybe they're in your small group or maybe we're meeting at the park or in my backyard? What God's been showing me is I need to go to that person that's being overlooked. And I need to fervently love them, pray for them, reach out to them. And so that is my heart for tonight. There's fifty-nine one another's in the scriptures. Fifty-nine commands regarding one another. I'm not going to read you all fifty-nine, but here's a couple of them. Be at peace with one another. That's Mark 9 50. Live in harmony with one another. Romans twelve sixteen. Stop passing judgment on one another. That's Romans fourteen, thirteen. Have equal concern for each other. First Corinthians twelve twenty-five. Carry each other's burdens, Galatians 6.2. Forgive each other, Ephesians 4.32. Speak, speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, Ephesians 5.19. In humility, consider others better than yourselves, Philippians 2, three. Do not lie to each other, Colossians 3.9. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Now that one's hard to do at times, right? Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Colossians 3:13. Now as I was reading these when I was putting the study together, I thought if we fervently love one another from the heart, all the rest of these are going to fall into place, right? If you fervently love your brother from the heart, are you going to be at peace with him? Are you going to be in harmony with him? Are you going to have equal concern for them? Are you going to be patient with them? Are you going to lie to them? Are you going to forgive their grievances? It's all going to fall into place when we get our hearts in this right place of loving each other. And it's tough right now. We're in difficult times to where we have to get creative of how we still meet together, how we still share meals together, how we can still pray together. Thank God we have the live stream to reach you guys and fellowship still. But... I'm passionate about us not forsaking the gathering together, and so I believe we're going to get creative in the days to come. It's like the church in China; the government shuts them down, shuts them down. What do they do? Are they like, well, we can't meet? You know, the government shut us down, and uh, I guess that's it. We go home, and no, they're going to meet underground. I'm reading, I'm reading about Richard Wormbrandt right now, tortured for Christ. I don't know if you guys have seen the movie, but I'm reading through his um, about his life and some books about him, and he continued to preach the gospel in Romania, even though they told him, churches are shutting down, you're not allowed to preach, and for eight and a half years, they they put him in prison, they let him out, he began preaching again, three and a half more years he preached, then they threw him in solitary confinement, they would beat him up, they would mock him, they would, he's in this rat-infested room, and you know what he did? He preached sermons to himself every night in solitary confinement. Sermon after sermon so that he could keep his mind in a right place with the Lord. And so God wants us to stay obedient even in difficult times. So what does Jesus say about loving one another? I'm going to go to John chapter 13, verse 34 and 35. And as I was putting this study together, I actually put it together a couple weeks ago and I've been working through it. Um, something happened a couple of weeks ago to where I couldn't teach on a Wednesday night and um, Joe actually shared a couple of these verses on Sunday that I'm going to go to today, and I thought, wow, um, God's putting these same verses on our hearts. John 13:34 and 35. Jesus said, "A new command, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another." By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, one of the questions here is why does Jesus say it's a new commandment? Didn't the disciples already know to love one another? Didn't the Old Testament tell them to love their neighbor as themselves? And I believe what Jesus is saying here is this is a new commandment because nobody has ever loved you the way that I have loved you. No one's ever taught you the way I've taught you. No one's ever prayed for you the way I've prayed for you. No one's ever been as patient and kind and gentle with you the way that I have. And that's why it says at the end of verse 34, just as I have loved you, or even as I have loved you, so you are to love one another. And that's what we have to remember is Jesus is our example of how to love one another. Were the disciples lovable people? At times it was very difficult for Jesus. It seems as if he was getting very frustrated with them, like, oh, you foolish generation, how long do I have to put up with you? But he was patient. He continued to teach them and nurture them up to the very end. And this is at the Last Supper, John chapter 13, the Last Supper. And what is Jesus doing? His heart and his mind is focused on teaching the disciples and preparing them for the days to come. And so let's go to John chapter 15, verse 12, still at the Last Supper. Jesus said, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. He repeats that same theme. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Is there any greater way for us to show our love for someone else than to lay down our lives for them? That is the greatest way to show your love for someone else. And that is what Christ did for not only us, but for the sins of the whole world. He laid down his life it says, you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go forth and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the father in my name, he may give to you. This, I command you that you love one another. Five times he says in chapters 13 through 15, love one another. He doesn't say this is a suggestion. This is something that I hope you do. He says this, I command that you love one another. We need to take this command very seriously, especially in these days when there's division all around us. If I go on Twitter or Facebook, I can see just Christians fighting with each other, throwing grenades at each other. Does the world see that and go, wow, we know that those are Christians because of their love for one another. Are they really keeping Christ's commands here? And if we get caught up in the flesh, it can happen to any of us with all this political stuff going on and debates on masks and this and that. And it's like, there's a time to debate and there's a time for those things. But the scripture calls us to speak the truth in love. And we need to remember the command to love one another. So let's go over to John chapter 17, verse 11. Now Jesus and the disciples, they leave from the Last Supper. They go to the Garden of Gethsemane. This is at the foot of the Mount of Olives. And in Luke 22, verse 44, it tells us that Jesus was in agony. He was praying fervently, and his sweat became like drops of blood. So, so Luke gives us a picture of as to what Jesus is going through right here as he's praying his high priestly prayer. He's crying out to the Father. He's in agony. He's about to go to the cross for the sins of the world. Now, what, what was Jesus praying for as he's going to go to the cross? What would you and I be praying for in that situation? I think I would be praying for myself. And at first, Jesus says that, and he says it quickly. If, if you must, Father, if you are willing Remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but thy will be done. He goes right from, not my will, but your will, Father. And then after that, in verses 6 through verses 26, it's all about his disciples. This high priestly prayer is Jesus crying out to the Father for his disciples. If we pick it up in verse 11, Jesus said to the Father, And I am no more in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to thee. Holy Father, keep them in thy name, the name which thou hast given me, that they may be one even as we are. What is Jesus' prayer here? That the church, believers, the disciples would be one even as he and the Father are one. What kind of unity exists between the Father and the Son? Man, such an intimate relationship of unity. And that's what his prayer is for the Christian church that we would be one as him and the Father are one. Now go down to verse 20. That they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you did send me. And the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one I in them and you and me that they may be perfected in unity that the world may know that you did send me and that you loved me and you loved them even as you have loved me. Three times there he talks about being one, being united in the faith. Christ wants us to be one in the church. And so what is getting in the way of our unity? Um. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity. If a non believer came into our setting, if a non believer, well, they're not coming here tonight, but when we gather at the park or wherever we're at and they're to see us, what are they going to think of our meeting? I wanted to title this message, Making Nonbelievers Scratch Their Heads. I think non believers, when they see Christians together, they should scratch their heads and go, what in the world is going on here? Why do these people love each other so much? I just don't get it. They're willing to do anything for each other. Their love for each other is so different from anything in this world. It just, it just boggles our mind. I think that's the level of love God wants us to have for each other. And so that's my encouragement for us tonight, for you and me, as I'm putting together this study, is let's take it up a notch, so to speak. Let's take it to the next Level. Let's get serious about pursuing one another in the Lord, whether that's texting somebody, calling someone, sending them an email, um, praying with them. I mean, there was a gentleman at church who, over a two year period, he would come to my house at 5 a.m. every Wednesday morning. And this was a couple years ago, but he would read the Word of God with me, he would pray with me, we would confess our sins to one another. And I believe he worked in the opposite direction. He's got a family. He's got a lot of kids. But he took these verses seriously, and it had a big impact on my life. And my prayer is that more of us would continue to do that. Now, what is Jesus talking about when he's talking about unity here? He's not talking about Chrislam, right? He's not talking about us being united in the faith with Islam or any other ism. Or any other religion. He's talking about unity of believers. He's talking about unity in Christ. The Jesus of the scriptures. The Jesus who is God in the flesh. The Jesus who pre-existed with the Father and with the Spirit in eternity past. The Jesus who was born of a virgin. Who lived a perfect sinless life. And died on a Roman cross. And who was buried and who rose on the third And all who repent and put their faith and trust in him, they will be saved. These are the blood-bought believers that Jesus is talking about here. Our brothers and sisters in the Lord that we should strive to be united in the faith with. So how did they do it in the book of Acts? How did they apply these teachings of Jesus? Let's go to Acts chapter 1, verse 13. And it says, and when they had entered... This is the disciples. Jesus just ascended into heaven right at, right before this and he said, you know, don't go out into the whole world yet. Stay in Jerusalem, then go to Judea and then Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. Don't worry, the gospel's going to get out, but first stay here and wait for the power from on high. So in verse 13, they had entered, they went into the upper room. And this is where they were staying, that is Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Thomas Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, these all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Remember, Jesus prayed for one, prayed for unity, and here they are. He ascends to heaven, and what are they doing? They're praying as one with one mind, continually devoting themselves to prayer. What does it mean to continually devote yourself to something? It means to do something with intense effort, with the possible implication of difficulty, to keep on, to persist in, to give constant attention to, to give unremitting care to a thing, not to faint. There's going to be times when it's going to be difficult to gather. It was difficult in the early church at times for them to gather, yet they continually devoted themselves to these things and so we need to continually devote ourselves to getting together to praying to ministering to one another we're going to see this again um, in a minute here in acts chapter 2 if you go to verse 1 when the day of pentecost had come they were all together in one place we see this again they're all united in the faith they're together in one place and what happens they're crying out to the lord the holy spirit falls down upon them with tongues of fire They're preaching in all these different tongues, and what happens? Peter gets up, and he says, these men aren't drunk, as some of you think. The Spirit has fallen upon them, just as God prophesied in the Old Testament, and 3,000 people get saved on that day. Now, they didn't start a mega church and say, okay, we're just going to meet for 30 minutes on a Sunday, and uh, we're going to go home, and Monday through Saturday, we're just going to live life and, you know... We'll see you again next Sunday for 30 minutes. Peter didn't just say, you know, bye, bye guys, bye the 3,000. See you next Sunday for 30 minutes. No. What does it say in Acts 2, 42? This is after 3,000 people got saved, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to prayer, and to fellowship. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles' And all those who had believed were together, and they had all things in common. They began selling their property and their possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continually with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who who were being saved. If you see in verse 46 it says day by day continuing with one mind. What was Jesus's prayer in the high his high priestly prayer in Acts chapter 17 that they would be one, right? In one accord. That's what it means. One mind, one passion, one accord, unity. And we see the early church here staying close together. Now I know some of us are still working. Some have lost jobs. We have families. We have kids. Life is busy. We're, going, we're dealing with COVID. We're de- There's so many different moving pieces in our lives. And it can be a challenge to keep the words that are spoken here to continually devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, to prayer, and to fellowship. But for me, this is front and center in my life that I devote myself to these things with my brothers and sisters. And when they did this, this, a sense of awe came upon them. God was blessing them tremendously. It says in Acts 20, 35, it's more blessed to give than to receive. When we give of our time, when we use our gifts to glorify God and we use our gifts to edify others, when we pour out our lives into others, God is going to bless us in return. It's a win-win. But when we become selfish... When we sit at home and we do our own thing, we don't reach out to others. In the end, we're left angry, disappointed, despairing. And so it's a win-win when we practice these truths of Scripture and we love each other. Let's go to Acts chapter 20, verse 36. The Apostle Paul here, he just got done exhorting, preaching to the Ephesian elders. He called them to himself, and he told them that with all humility and tears and trials, he was with them for three years. He ministered to the Ephesian church for three years. He poured his heart into the church of Ephesus, and he was afraid that he might not ever see them again, and that's what he talks about here in Acts chapter 20, and he tells them that savage wolves are going to come in, not sparing the flock. He tells them to be on the alert. He tells them that he preached the gospel and he did not hold back from sharing anything with them. And when we get to verse 36 in Acts chapter 20, it says, And when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And they began to weep aloud and embraced Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they should see his face no more. And they were accompanying him to the ship, this this to me is a picture of fervently loving one another from the heart. They didn't just like give Paul a fist bump and say, "Hey, Paul, thanks, brother. I'm glad you you know were, stayed with us for three years and you know it's been real. Have a nice life, bro. Maybe we'll see you again. Love you. Text us when you get to Jerusalem for the Day of Pentecost because that's where Paul wanted to go. No, he didn't say that. They didn't say that to Paul. They wept. They kissed him. They hugged him. They were pleading, don't go. Stay with us longer. We love you deeply. We care for you. We don't want you to go. We don't want you to die in Jerusalem. Stay with us. And that's the kind of heart I want us to have for each other. This fervent, deep, passionate, Christ-like love. But it takes time. Paul took three years. Spent three years in Ephesus ministering to them day after day after day. And it's hard to have this kind of love for each other if we barely know each other. It's very difficult. And I know that Blessed Hope, I mean, I'm kind of biased in this. I know Blessed Hope's better than a lot of churches at loving one another. When we were meeting, we'd stay after, sometimes an hour, two hours. Pastor Joe's mentioned speaking at conferences, and right after he's done teaching, it's like the whole place clears out. Or he speaks at other churches, and it's just like, nobody's there. And he's like, what in the world? And you come to Blessed Hope, and we see that. But we can always do better, right? As long as we're in these bodies, as long as we're here on earth, there's room for improvement. There's room for growth. So, Paul loved these elders deeply. And he was in a hurry to get to Jerusalem, because he also loved the Jews, And he wanted to minister to them. And his heart was to reach all people with the gospel. So, I want to talk about an article that I found online. It's called The Legacy of Love, this article. And in this article, it quotes several times from a book by Rodney Stark called called The Rise of Christianity. And it documents the rise of Christianity in the several centuries after Christ. And one of Stark's arguments in his book is that Christianity grew because Christians constituted an immense community, an intense love for each other. And the world saw this, and they wanted a part of it. And many people got saved, thousands and thousands and maybe even millions, in the first several centuries after Christ ascended into heaven because of their love for one another. Now, there were two plagues in the years. 165 through 180, and 251 to 266. There was two severe plagues. The first one was called the Antonine Plague, or also the Plague of Galen. It was an ancient pandemic. 2,000 people a day died at Rome. One quarter of those infected died. That would be like in the U.S. What do we have? Maybe 330, 340 million 82 million Americans dying. That's roughly a comparison to this time period. If a quarter of those died. It's massive, massive pandemic. And then in 251 to 266, it says 5,000 people a day were said to be dying at Rome. And Pontius the deacon wrote of the plague at Carthage. And this is what he says. And I quote, he says, afterwards... There broke out a dreadful plague, an excessive destruction of a hateful disease invaded every house and succession of the trem- trembling populace, carrying off day by day with abrupt attack numberless people, everyone from his own house, all were shuddering, fleeing, shunning the contagion, impiously exposing their own friends as if. With the exclusion of the person who was sure to die of the plague, one could exclude death itself also. People were leaving their friends to die. They were running, hoping to be saved. They were abandoning their friends and loved ones. They lay about, meanwhile, over the whole city, no longer bodies, but the carcasses of many. And by the contemplation of a lot, which in their turn would be theirs, demanded the pity of passers-by for themselves. No one regarded anything besides his cruel gains. No one trembled at the remembrance of a similar event. No one did to another what he himself wished to experience. So he's documenting what the unbelievers were doing with each other. And they were just basically leaving people to die, fleeing for the mountaintops. And yet many of them still died, those that were fleeing from the plague Here's what another person notes. This is on page 76 of Stark's book. It says, So many people died that cities and villages in Italy and in the provinces were abandoned and fell into ruin. Distress and disorganization was so severe that a campaign against Marko was postponed. When in 169 the war was finally resumed, Hacer records that many of their Germanic warriors, men and women, were found dead on the field without wounds, having died from the epidemic so they were just dropping like flies they went to war and they were falling to the ground dying of this serious serious epidemic here's one more quote from a person that lived at the time an unbeliever of the plague of cyprian he says here we are in a city of death all around us our family and friends are dropping we can never be sure of it or when we will fall sick too In the midst of such appalling circumstances, humans are driven to ask, why? Why is this happening? Why them and not me? Will we all die? Why does the world exist anyway? You know, in times of deep trial, even people in the world begin asking questions. Where is God? Who is God? Now, more than ever in our country, is a time where we need to be be lights and be sharing the gospel because people's hearts are fearful. They're wondering what is going on. They're looking to God just like this person in the second century. Why does the world exist anyway? What is going to happen next? What can we do? If we are pagans, we probably already know that our priests profess ignorance. They do not know why the gods have sent such misery, or if the gods are involved or even care. Worse yet, many of our priests have fled the city, as have the highest civil authorities and the wealthiest families, which adds to the disorder and suffering. So once again, they're fleeing. The priests don't know what's going on. The false religions, their pastors, or priests, they don't have the answers. Now, how did the Christians respond to the plagues? Here's what Bishop Dionysus says. He, says, he noted, Other people would not think this time for festival, he wrote, but far from being a time of distress, it is a time of unimaginable joy. Can you imagine? These people in the world, they're freaking out. Their loved ones are falling to the ground. They're fearing for their lives. They're running for the hills. And what does the Bishop Dionysus say? He says, for the Christians, it's a time of unimaginable joy. It's amazing. What is the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Love, joy. If we are being filled with God's Spirit, no matter what is going on around us, joy should be in our hearts. And that's why Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Always. And again, I say, rejoice. We should be rejoicing no matter what is going on in this world. That doesn't mean we're going to go through, not going to go through difficult times. That doesn't mean we're going to have trials to where we're pleading with the Lord and, and tough times. But at the end of the day, we have joy in our hearts. He goes on to say that though this terrified the pagans, the Christians greeted the epidemic as merely schooling and testing. Thus, at a time when all other faiths were called to question. Christianity offered explanation and comfort. Even more important, Christian doctrine provided a prescription for action. They're saying, while this world is growing darker and darker, Christianity gives us a prescription for action. Christ commanded us to love one another, to get active, to be lights in this dark world. And so the Christians were on the front lines. They were active. They were ready to keep the commands of Christ when all the other religions had no answers. Here's another quote from Dionysus. He says, Most of our brother Christians showed unabounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. A number of the elders, the pastors, the deacons, the laymen, winning high commendation, So that death in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith, seems in every way the equal of martyrdom. It was like a badge of honor. The pastors, the elders, the deacons, they were saying, it's time to shine. It's time to live for Christ. It's time to fervently love one another. We're going to do this. And Dionysius says it was like they were being martyred for the faith. They went to death boldly and happily for Christ and for the sake of one another. Awesome testimony of the early Christian church. And what's interesting is that the Christians were so on fire for the Lord and for loving each other. I believe Joe mentioned this on Sunday as well. It was in my notes. A century after the plague, the second plague, the Emperor Julian launched a campaign to institute pagan charities in an effort to match the Christian's he goes, we've got to match the Christians. They're loving each other so much. They're winning so many converts. They're taking over the Roman Empire. We need to match them in some way. Julian complained in a letter to the high priest of Galatia in 362 that the pagans needed to equal the virtues of the Christians. For recent Christian growth was caused by their moral character, even if pretended. He goes, even if pretended. This is mind-boggling what they're doing for each other and that by their love towards strangers and care for the graves of the dead. And in a letter to another priest, Julian wrote, I think that when the poor happened to be neglected and overlooked by the priests, the impious Galileans observed this and devoted themselves to love. He also wrote, the impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lacked aid from us like the wheat was being separated from the chaff, the Christians and the non-Christians. It was so apparent who the Christians were because of their love for one another. And so Julius wants to try to imitate this, or Julian, he wants to imitate this, but they can't. You can only do this by the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us, the Holy Spirit acting in our lives, empowering us to love one another. So in the first three centuries, multiple thousands, and even eventually hundreds of thousands and million Gentiles became believers in Jesus during this period of these two epidemics. Millions of believers. They came to know the Lord because of the love, the outgoing concern, and the organized selfless nursing of the sick. I want to close with a quote from Tertullian, the early church father. He says, It is our care of the helpless, Our practice of loving kindness that brands us in the eyes of many of our opponents. Only look, they say, look how they love one another. What do our opponents say of us? What do our opponents online, if we're engaged in online battles, what do our opponents at work, what are our our opponents that we run into in this world, what do they say about us? Do they say that we love one another deeply, and so that is my heart, and that is my prayer for us. I did want to mention that um, when I was in my late teenage years and in my early 20s, several people from the church took us into their house. My parents split up. They were separated. Eventually, they divorced, and the Pieros, the Williams, the Bowman's, the Haynes, the McFall's, Perhaps there was others, my memory's not the greatest. but they took us into their house, and they helped us, they cared for us, they loved us, and I'm reminded of that. That is taking these verses seriously, of fervently loving one another. I've seen it in my own life. And I, would, I wouldn't be standing here today teaching you, teaching myself, as I'm you know meditating on the scriptures too, if it wasn't for other believers, if it wasn't for other families in this church that have loved me over the years and poured in to my life and so my plea for us today is that we continue to do these things in the midst of this crooked and perverse generation paul says that we would be lights of the world above reproach in the midst of whatever is going on and so that's my prayer for us today so will you join me in prayer father